we have been looking at a few questions pertaining to suffering. And these questions, whether you know it or not, these are real questions that we have as humans, because we suffer. These are things that, that can be hard. And we looked last week at what is suffering, and the Bible defines suffering in many different ways, with many different words, and each word has a particular way of describing what suffering is. And primarily, we've been looking at, in this section, we've been looking at suffering of Christ in the book of Psalms. And a lot of people usually are surprised by that because they don't think that Christ is in the Old Testament. Lo and behold, he is. In fact, the Old Testament points to, speaks of Christ. There are many passages in Psalms that speak of his suffering. And we've seen that why Christ suffered. For our redemption. That's the primary reason why he suffered. There's other reasons why, but the primary reason is for our redemption. Suffering also in the book of Psalms speaks of our suffering. If you read any of the Psalms, you realize there's lamenting. There's this, why, O Lord? How long, O Lord? Why me? Why do the wicked seem to prosper? All these things. And they're also in the book of Psalms. Suffering refers to the people of God. What is suffering? And then we looked at why is there suffering? In fact, I thought of this this week. From now until we end this series, pretty much every sermon will ask this question, why is there suffering? And the Bible responds to that. Why is there suffering? Last week we saw in the New Testament, there's many answers. We looked at one, Philippians 1, 29. It says this, For you have been given, you have been graciously given. And this word is given is grace. You have been given, it's a privilege, it's a favor. Not only to trust Christ, and we, we understand that, it's grace that we trust the Lord, right? But also, it says this, it says, For you have been given not only the privilege of trusting in Christ, but also the privilege of suffering for him. What? Privilege is connected with suffering? So, suffering is a gracious gift from God, a privilege. Great. Everyone raise your hands and says, I want that, right? No, we, we don't. But yet it is a privilege. And we will look at some answers in a few weeks. Like this. I wrote this thinking of my children. We will look at what suffering is and why. Like sickness, suffering, slivers, and sin. Because when my kids get slivers, the whole world stops. And we got to get the big lights out and, the, you know, and just finally pick it out without any more hurt. Why is there suffering? Now today what I want to do is I want to pause in this and step back and get a big picture. The big picture view of what we're dealing with here. And ask this question, why do we as Christians suffer? And the general term that I want to look at is, what, what do we as Christians have as our worldview? Have you heard of that term before? Your worldview, what, what we think through. Worldviews can be thought of as, in a sense, lenses. And I brought these pair of glasses here. They're the ones you notice on my head. They're a little crooked. Maybe that's because my brain is crooked and I've got to put these on to straighten things out. I'm not sure why, but it's primarily because I wrestle a lot with my kids. And that's what happens. I forget to take my glasses off and... How you see things, what you look through, what your worldview is, how you perceive things. That's a way of understanding a worldview. How you interpret the world. 
For instance, if you have sunglasses on, I have a couple pair of sunglasses that I use when I do mountaineering. One have a very blue tint to it, one have a silver tint. When you put those on, everything looks that color. Or I brought for you my daughter's, this has been passed on through a few daughters, their sunglasses. And when you put these on, yes, I'm going to put them on. When you put these on, you see the world in a different way. Excuse me, I've got a scratch in my eye. There we go. Okay, that's helpful. There we go. So I see the world in a different color. This would be my worldview, how I see things. Or there's different other types of glasses you could put on safety glasses, which serve a purpose, and this is how my world is perceived. Or if you are a welder, you have a welding hood, you can put that on. And that's what you see the world through. How dangerous it would be if you put a welding hood on that's very dark and only you can see things when you're welding. How many would wear a welding hood when you want to go driving at night? No one. Different worldviews have different results. A worldview lens is different depending on which lens you look through and the colors that you have on those lenses. The lenses of the worldview are primarily a way that we filter and perceive things and what we, out of that, then base the world upon. We filter subjective experience of objective reality and interpret those experiences in terms of, take a look at this slide, four different things. Oh, wrong slide, next one. There we go. One, how things appear. Our perception of things. For instance, you've heard the term rose-colored glasses. What does that mean? We put on rose-colored glasses. My wife might accuse me of wearing rose-colored glasses often. She calls me, my little nickname is the eternal optimist. I always see the positive of things. Gratefully for when I pray for you, right? Oh, that's a good thing, right? Yeah. But I see the positive. I see, oh, this isn't bad. This is good. Look what we can do out of this. They're how things appear. Things are more pleasant than reality. And she likes to bring in, bam, here's reality. And I go, oh, you're right. Let me take off those rose-colored glasses and see things the way they are. Because when you put glasses on, it truly may not be the way they are. You put a welding hood on and you try to drive at night, you'll end up probably in the hospital because things weren't the way you thought they were. So if you have the wrong glasses on, the outcome can be very dangerous. Or listen to this, belief in something does not make it true. You can believe all you want about a certain idea or concept, but that doesn't make it true. How we perceive things. It's our perception. There was a lot of that going on prior to the Super Bowl in the state, but we won't go there today. <laughs> the next aspect is this. The purpose. Our worldview, the way we think, see things, is how things should be. The purpose. This is what the world is about. It asks questions like this. Why are we here? Depending on what kind of worldview, what kind of glasses you have on, that speaks of our purpose, our goal. Why are we here? Another aspect is what's right and wrong with the world and how things are happening. And this is the problem. 
Our worldview, how we view things, what we put on, determines on how you decide what the real problem is, what the real issue is. Why are things not the way they should be? What's wrong with the world? What's wrong with me? In fact, in the, in the field of psychology, there's many different worldviews that people put on. As you maybe know of people that have gone, or you yourself have gone to counseling, people have different methods of determining what's really wrong. Well, it all stems from what kind of glasses, what kind of worldview they're looking through. And the last one is the solution. What, if any, because many worldviews don't have a solution, what, if any, should be done about this problem? The solution is presented. How do we fix the world we live in? What's the remedy to fix our political issues we have or our problems we have within the affairs of our families? This is how you see through. Everything else is blurry, but when things become clear, that's your worldview and how you look at it. Let me show you a different aspects of how a few ways of seeing how different worldviews play out. So take a look at the next slide here. I've got a little fancy pointer here. This would be the traditional way of the way most people in the Western world would understand how they come to their conclusions and their worldview. The purpose. The purpose is just do good. Be good, do good, and things will be fine. If you do good, moral goodness, that's, that's the purpose. But the problem is moral failure. And you just got to get your behavior right and everything will be fine. But the problem is people are just morally bad. And then you bring in society, you bring in government, you bring in other different institutional ways to straighten things out. The solution, self-effort. Get yourself corrected. Get right. You commit crimes, you do something bad, you fail morally, we'll, we'll put you in prison and hopefully the prison will straighten you out so then you yourself can realize what's wrong and you will get yourself together and self-effort is the solution. That's pretty prominent today, is it not? Yeah. Another one is what we would call the naturalistic way of understanding. The purpose, survival. That life is all about Survival. If you step on people, who cares? Whatever you can do to survive. But the problem that they see is lack of adaptability. If you don't adapt to the culture, society, or whatever situation the circumstances in, you will get plundered, you'll be pushed away. Only the strong survive. The solution? Self-knowledge. Know thyself. Figure it out, and you can work it through, and you, you can do it. Another way, which is common today, is postmodernism. Maybe you've heard this term before, and maybe you're like, whatever that means. These kind of glasses, this kind of way of understanding the world, is huge today. It's probably the prevailing thought of today. What's the purpose? Freedom. Live for yourself. Be free. Whatever, you know, there's the constraints that society puts on you. Ah, let's adjust those so I can be free and smoke whatever I want. Oh, I guess our state has done that very well, right? Okay. What they see is the problem? Oppression. 
The government's too strong. Religion just brings oppression in the end. Don't, my parents, all my problems are because of my parents. They try to kind of weigh me down. I need freedom to liberate myself and live and act in any way I want. Very common today. What's the solution? Liberate yourself. Free yourself. That's one way. And usually I want to get into discussions with people like this, depending where they're at. Sometimes I say, freedom is so important, and I agree with that. But imagine a fireplace without boundaries. You'd burn your house down. Then the Christian worldview, with the gospel as its core. What's the purpose? The purpose, and you've, the purpose is knowing God. The purpose in our life, and we see this in Scripture, in fact, one of the primary things of the Old Testament is all about knowing God. In fact, that's kind of one of our core values as a church. Know, grow, and show. Know God. What's the purpose? Knowing Him. What's the problem? Sin. Yes, we look at sin. Sin is the problem. You look at this, disobedience to God. That is the problem. And what's the solution? Christ and his grace. These are the different world, these are different lenses that people look through. And maybe you can think of family members, co-workers, or even yourself as you've maybe grown through some of these things. You see like, that's where I used to be, here's where I'm at, or that's where so-and-so is. That's where Uncle Billy Bob Bucktooth is at, and boy, he's definitely, that makes sense right there. He's in that camp, right? Does that make sense? I sat down with my 10-year-old, I said, look at the, she couldn't, what's that word, what's that word? I said, well, this is a different way people think. And as I read the last one, she said, obviously the last one's correct. Even a 10-year-old could figure that one out. Or, take a look at the next slide. This is from Chuck Colson's Breakpoint. He kind of does the same thing here. You've got the biblical, the secular, postmodern, Islam, Eastern religions, and the New Age. Asking the question, where did I come from? And here's their stuff. What's wrong with the world? And every worldview, they're going to answer this. What's wrong with the world? I could go to a very popular psychiatrist or Dr. Phil. Say, what's wrong with the world? He will fall in one of these camps. And there, is there a solution? Some say there's not a solution. Some say there is. What's my purpose? And already you can see, you can find this online at Breakpoint. Some of the different aspects of that. How do people come to these thoughts? Well, it's what they perceive the world through, what lens they're looking, what worldview they're looking at. And please listen to this. There is a true outcome for each of these worldviews. There is a reality that is true that will come upon whatever worldview you stand with. Or... Maybe these charts aren't the best for you. Maybe your brain is like mine, and this next slide is probably a better one, and your brain is all just all over. So take a look at the next slide here. Wow. That's kind of how my brain works sometimes. But really, if you've heard me say this before, most of our problems, look at me before you look at the slide and try to figure it out. Look at me, just don't get confused by that slinky-dink that's all stretched out and all over. Please look at me. Most of our problems stem from an incorrect view of God. You've heard me say this before. If you have a wrong, correct view of God, it will naturally lead to a lot of problems. Even as Christians, keep looking at me. Don't get lost up there. 
as Christians, if you have an incorrect view of God, if you don't study the Word, if your fingers aren't in here, your eyes aren't peeled in here, and your heart soaking up the truth of who He is, how He reveals Himself, not how your Sunday school taught you to think, oh, this is how God is, but how He reveals Himself, you'll have a lot of problems. We need to have a correct understanding of who God is, right? Because you're still looking at me, right? Okay, yeah. Now put your eyes back up there. Whew. It's like teaching a class of third graders. Just kidding. Just kidding. So we start here. Is there a God? Really, out of, out of here, there's three that we have in, in, in the Western world here, kind of, is no. If you say no, that's an atheist. You've heard of that. When you, whenever you put in the letter A in front of some type of word, a lot of times that negates that word. Atheist. It negates it. You don't believe there is no God. Or you can say that you don't care. Or you don't know, which is agnostic. I don't know if there's a God. There, there possibly could be a God. I'm not sure. We look, we look even at the cells and all this stuff, and a lot of people in science say, well, I'm agnostic because, man, there, there possibly is a design in here. A lot of this may crawl out of the creepy crud and slime and monkeys and then this, but there's more than that. So there, there possibly is. So that's agnostic. And then, yes. So watch the flow here. Does God exist? Yes. More than one God. Is there more than one God? Those who say yes, they're polytheists. And those primarily live in what country? India. They live in millions of gods. 33 million, I think, is kind of the, the traditional count that they say. I'm not sure someone's counted everyone, but that's about how many gods they have. Okay, polytheism. If more than one God, no. Is God in control of the world now? Very important question. He's in control of the world. Yes. If you say he's not, then you're a deist. You believe in a God, and you can sing the Bette Midler song, God is watching from a distance. That came out like in the 80s, right? He's watching from a distance. He kind of got a cake going, put in the oven, turned the oven on, stepped back, hands in the pocket. God's watching from a distance. Hopefully the cake turns out, and we, yeah, I don't know. Hopefully he's got the timer. Is God in control of the world? Yes. God exists independently from the world. Does he, does he need us? No, he doesn't need us. If you say yes, then you go on this and you can go back to pantheism and other things. Yes. Where am I headed here? Yes. Is God involved in the world? Is he involved right now? Yes. So then you follow this to yes. You're a theist. You believe in one God. He is actively involved. And there are three major world religions that fall into this camp. Christianity, Judeo-Christian, which is the Jews, the Israel. Obviously, that stems from us. And then what's the next one? The Muslims, Islam. Where am I here? The theist. Can God be personally known? Here's a huge question. Can we know God? Praise God we can. He's revealed himself in his word. Can he be known? Yes. Then the question is, God made himself known through the work of the man, Jesus Christ. Yes. No. And then you come to this question. Yes. Salvation can be found only in Jesus Christ. Yes. Then you're a Christian theist. This is a worldview of many questions you ask, but you can sit with someone and go, you can follow it all the way down and find out, oh, you're a humanist, you're a naturalist. You can go through all this stuff and find out these different worldviews. We went through that, now forget the slide that's up there. 
Everyone has a worldview. Everyone has a way of perceiving reality, of perceiving what they think is true, and how they look at what's the purpose and goal, what's the problem. And it's amazing the outcome of these situations. And again, the problem comes when someone is operating from the wrong world view. Like wearing a welding hood, driving at night. If you have the wrong one on, you're in deep trouble. In the current dominant view today that's out there in our Western world is that, here it is, everyone's opinion is legit and is true. Scratch my head on that one. Everyone has a right to have their own opinion. It's equal and of the same value, and no one is wrong. I could take a car battery. I was thinking about doing this, but you guys would stop me from doing this. Bring it out here, getting a drill, drilling out, letting the asses pour out and go, I firmly believe that this will not hurt me and gulp it down. But you can believe that if you want, and that's fine. That's what people think today. That's the prevailing thought today. And this is what we call postmodernism. I am free to enjoy my religion as long as I don't impose it on you, and you better not impose it on me. Don't provoke me. Don't be intolerant. Truth has become what we make it to be. Oh, that's huge. Hey, what's ever true to you is true to you. Go ahead, Pastor Cody, drink that battery acid. That's true to you. You'll be fine. I won't be fine. The only absolute truth is that there is no absolute truth. People that have this mindset of this postmodern mindset will say there is no absolute truth. And if you say there's absolute truth, you're in trouble, you're infringing on me, don't impose it upon me. The only absolute truth is that there's no absolute truth. So take a look at the next slide. For the Christian, we respond and shift from the what of truth, because it's important to talk about what truth is, to the who of truth. Does that make sense? Because I could spend days and days debating with someone about what is truth. But here's the beauty of this message right here. Not only do we speak of what is truth, we speak of who is true. Amen? And he took on flesh. He is Jesus Christ. Very famous verse that many kids learn in Sunday school and Awana and all the little clubs is John 14.6. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There's an absolute truth there. We move from the what of truth to the who of truth. And that is found in the person of Jesus Christ. Let me give you four quick short answers as I correspond with people that have a different worldview, that I believe have sunglasses at night driving very dangerous. The Christianity stands on its own because, and here's four quick points. Take a look at the next slide. Number one, I have to say that the greatest characteristic about Christianity is that the Christian God is the one who exists. 
and all the others do not. Already I begin a huge debate with people. Well, how can you say your God exists? I don't say he exists. He does. My beliefs aren't based upon what I come up with. It's based upon this truth. Well, how do you know this book is true? Do we make it true? No. In fact, when I, if I'm sitting with college students or whatever, those who like to pontificate with great minds and great thoughts and stuff, usually I'll say, you know what? How do I know this is the word of God? I apply the same reasoning and thoughts that's speaking to them as I would to say, how do we know Abraham Lincoln spoke the Gettysburg Address? How do you know? I'll use it. How do you know he said those words? Well, uh, we just know that. Well, how do you know? Were you there? Was it tape recorded? What, you know, and then, well, what we do is we have people that were there, and then we begin talking. Okay, there's verification that that's true. And there's verification that this is true. There is only one God, and the Christian God is the only one that exists. Psalm 96. Another one is this. All the stories and concepts from other places and other religions, they can have features about God. There can be a flood account in another story. They can have a creation story. All this comes from a God who reveals himself to the world. The unknown God in Athens in Acts 17 is the true God. And the greatest way he has revealed himself is through Jesus Christ. If you want to know who God is, he revealed himself in Jesus Christ. A third thing that I look at is this. All religions may sound the same until you look at the uniqueness. And this is a big one. People will say, well, all religions speak to the same God. Oh, the ones that, that, that are... In Saudi Arabia, they're worshiping Allah. That's the same God you have. All roads lead to the same God. People will say that commonly today. But when you look at the uniqueness of God, found in the atonement, in the cross of Jesus Christ, and who he is, you will realize he is completely different than all other gods. In fact, I thought about printing out a big handout about all the different world religions, how they find peace, hope, redemption, to fill the problem of sin. You realize all other religions are different compared to Christianity. Huge. The uniqueness of God and the atonement of Jesus to bring reconciliation to his people. 1 Corinthians 15. And the last one is this. Truth claims. Do we have something that we can say is true? All religions cannot be true at the same time because each teaches things completely different and in opposition. You run around people, run into people that will say, well, all religions are teaching the same things. Be kind. But they have different worlds, they have different lenses and how they answer the, what's the problem? Some of them won't say it's sin. Some of them say it's, it's the suffering within you, and you have to find a way to get away from that and find a peace to get away from that. They may seem to be on the same page on the surface and background, but the closer one gets, you realize they're totally different worldviews. And the central teachings, the more apparent the difference become when you look at them. Thus, only one can be true. There can only be one truth when it comes to the different world religions. And the hallmark to this issue stands on the fact 
of the resurrection. Of all the things we can point to to validate Christianity, the resurrection is the key one that we turn to. And I'll encourage you, if this is something that you're like, what well, I'm thinking, this, is this all true? I, I want to learn. There's some great books. Josh McDowell, it, McDowell is, he's one, a great one, that just puts out some great things about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The historical reliability of the Bible. There's many things, but primarily resurrection. So this is the big picture. This is the general overview of how people have different worldviews. If you don't have the right glasses on, things will be fuzzy. That's the macro lens. Now let's look at the micro lens. This is a nice little lesson on apologetics. Thank you, Pastor Cody, and worldviews. But what does this do have to do with suffering? Why is there suffering? I wanted to take a lot of time, but we just don't have time on a Sunday morning to deal with this. But every world religion, every type of worldview has a specific way of dealing with suffering. Because people want to deal with suffering. Why is there injustice in the world? Why is all this pain? Why is there war? Some deny God's reality, atheism. Some deny God's power, polytheism, dualism. Some deny God's goodness, Satanism, pantheism. Deism. Some deny evil and suffering. Idealism. Christian science. There's all different ways people deal with suffering. But here comes the question that I want to really deal with. Why do we as Christians have to suffer? Why do we suffer? And that's why I want to take time to say, well, we have this Christian worldview, how does that help us understand suffering? The Bible has many reasons. Sin, fallen world, we're going to deal with these coming up in the next couple of weeks. For instance, my little girl Grace has had the fever for about three days. Last night before I we went to bed, it was 103. We're like, okay, what do we do? You know, giving her meds and cooling her down and all this stuff. And there could be a, a couple reasons why she has a... Why, why is she suffering? Is it only because of sin? Is it only because, man, Grace, you shouldn't have been watching that cartoon longer than I told you to, and you're in trouble, and this is the result of it. You should have been eating 50 cheeseburgers. She doesn't eat 50 cheeseburgers. I'm coming with their things, but... There's the fallen world. There's sin. There's disobedience. There's multiple reasons why a Christian may suffer. But today, we're going to look specifically at one aspect. Suffering for being a Christian. One of the best books to look at is 1 Peter. So take your Bibles and turn to 1 Peter. If you have a Bible, 1 Peter, we're going to look at chapter 4. Well, let's just start at 1 Peter, chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, put your hand up. We've got a few in the back. Peter's writing to Christians scattered around a certain area, what we call today the western part of Turkey. He writes this to many people, not just one specific person, such as the letter Timothy was written just for him, or Ephesians was written to the church in Ephesus. This is written to a group of people in the western part of Turkey. And these people, they're they're living out this Christianity, and here's, I think, the prevailing, the, the number one thing that was in their mind. Why are we suffering right now? 
There's an emperor, Nero, and he was bad, but why are we as Christians suffering? This doesn't make sense. They're confused and thought it was strange that they're, as, Christi- as they entered Christianity, you would think that God is so good that when we enter Christianity, there will be no suffering. Because God is all good, yes. He is all powerful, yes. So then why are we suffering? Why does he not help? Possibly are some of the questions. Should he not be for the good of his people? And why are we having all these different kinds of trials? And here comes this great letter to these people. So first Peter, look at chapter one. I love this little section here. I'm just gonna we're gonna work our way quickly through. I'm just gonna read these verses and we'll get to chapter four. First Peter chapter one, starting with verse three. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Let me pause there. As a Christian, you have hope. It's a living hope. No matter what suffering you're going through, you have hope. Verse, five, verse 4, And into inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept for you in heaven, who through faith are shielded by God's power. Even though you're suffering right now, you are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Verse 6, here we get to the famous part. In this you greatly rejoice. Though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief of, in all kinds of trials. Rejoice, key word. Little while, key word. All kinds of trials. These have come. Why? These have come so that your faith Faith is of greater worth than gold. Gold perishes even though refined by fire. Your faith may be proved genuine and result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. We suffer so that our faith may be more real, more genuine, and result in praise and glory. And in this you're shielded by God's power. Turn to chapter 2. Well, I could read one through the whole chapter. Speaking primarily to slaves, verse 18. Slaves, submit yourselves to masters. And don't think of the way we understand slavery that happened in America. This is very different than that. Submit yourselves to your masters with all respect. Not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because he is conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called. Whoa. Listen to this. To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow his steps. Guess what, Christians? 
It may be very possible that you are called to suffer because Christ suffered for you and follow his steps. Called to suffer. He is our example. Follow the way he did under suffering. And another one, uh, we could do, let's do 317. This is, this is a great verse. I've thought about this a lot the last month. I've been thinking of this one. 1 Peter 3.17 It is better if it is God's will. God's will here. His plan. His purpose. It is better if it is God's will to suffer. What? God's will that I would suffer? How is that possible? We'll deal with that when we look at the sovereignty of God and suffering in the future here. It is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Now listen, let me just throw this out inside. We'll do this later. If you're suffering and you... Uh, I'll use an example here. If you, since the day you were five years old until you're 88, smoked 50 packs of cigarettes a day... I think anyone's done that in the church, so I'm not trying to offend anyone. And, and you have lung cancer and you, you're just about to die and you're like, well, I'm suffering for God right now. No... There's the results of sin, and okay, well, that's different. It's different than what's here. If it's God's will, you suffer for doing good. Praise God. Now, chapter 4, the main section we're going to look at here. Chapter 4. I'll just read the first verse, then we're going to start, get into chapter, uh, verse 12. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body... Remember, we've been talking about this. Christ came down. He suffered for his people. He was rejected for his people, so we would not be rejected. He truly was abandoned by God, so that we would never be abandoned. He suffered for his people. Why? To redeem his people. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, in his flesh, arm yourself with the same attitude. Listen, as a Christian, we need to, Christ suffered, we also need to arm ourselves, and this is a battle term here, put on, get ready to be suffering, to have pain, to have issues come up. We need to ready ourselves, get ready for suffering. Because he who has suffered in the body is done with sin. That doesn't mean we'll be sinless, because then he goes on to say, well, look, as a result, don't live like this. We're free from the penalty of sin, praise God. I'm sinless in his eyes, praise God. But we will suffer, sin will be encroaching upon us. We need to arm ourselves so we don't fall into wickedness. Live godly, have the right way and style and attitude that Christ had. Jump quickly to verse 12. This is where I want to look at here. I love how this says, Dear friends, in the, in the original language it says, Beloved. Again, my job as a pastor is to primarily feed the sheep and that results in many things I have to do. Pray for you. Show you truth. Preach from here. Do other things. John, Pastor John, is about feeding the sheep. But we're also about encouraging you where you're at in your suffering too. Remember, don't give up. Have confidence with God. You are beloved to me. 
and Pastor John and the elders. Peter writes with that same attitude to these people. Beloved, dear friends, as I come and visit some of you in the hospital, I may hold your hand when I pray for you, I may sit with you, or I think of one lady who is now in Yakima, Pat Kennedy. When I go there, she wants me to hold her hand most of the time. And I'm there with her. Listen to this. Dear friends, take a look at these words. Do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering. You shouldn't be surprised, church. Why? Because you have the worldview of Christianity. And when you have this kind of worldview, there is absolute truth to you. There is a remedy for the problem, which is sin. And those words right there will get you in a lot of trouble if you go to any college university. Because people hate those words. They hate Jesus. Don't be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering. One reason is that we live in a counter-cultural lifestyle. You can believe what you want. You can smoke what you want. You can live any way you want, and that's okay for you. Just don't impose your belief system on me. We live in that society right now. Don't be surprised when you live for Christ that you will face trials. When you stand for truth. So here it is, church. Stand for truth. Don't keep your mouth quiet when people talk about stuff. Stand for truth. Don't stand for your, your opinions. Here's one of the problems I find out. When people do witnessing and people confront people with different worldviews, a lot of times people get mad at them because they were saying their own opinions. They get mad because of the evangelist. They're offended by the Christian's presentation. Here it is. Listen to this. Don't let people be offended by your presentation. Let them be offended by truth and the gospel. They should be offended by Jesus, not by my presence or what I, you know. Sometimes you say it the wrong way, but don't let them be offended by you. Let them be offended by truth. In fact, you should also say, I'm offended by this because my heart's prone to sin. I, I need a Savior. We live in a world that's countercultural in lifestyle. We have and work from a different worldview. We have to face difficult issues. Hostile, hostile people will come to us because the gospel brings oppression to those who present it. When you speak truth, look out. So he says, dear friend, beloved, don't be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering. And again, this pertains to living godliness and proclaiming his truth, living for him, not other things such that we will deal with in the future pertaining to sin. As though something strange were happening to you. Don't be surprised. You know, it's different from the picture we paint today in Christianity. Take a look at the next slide, and hopefully these are numbered right here. Nope. Go back to the one that was the one with the lions. I'm sorry, maybe you can find that one. Yes. We have this idea in Western Christianity that God has a wonderful plan for you. 
You're going to live in prosperity. There will be no issues in your world. You'll be free from sickness. You'll have wealth. And oh, I can't wait to have that big yacht. I keep talking about a yacht. I don't really want a yacht. If I get someone gave me a yacht, I'd just sell it and be like, wow. We get this idea that God has a wonderful plan for you. Guess what? We're going to deal with this in the future coming up. This blows me away. Many times, God's plan is suffering for his glory, for your benefit. It's amazing what's preached today in the world where people say, Christianity's all happy, jolly, let's hold hands and kumbaya by the campfire, which is fine, you can do that. And we'll, have, we'll be free of suffering. God has a wonderful plan for you, let's all be happy and let's... Here's a great picture of what's happening to the people at this time. Have you ever seen the movie Gladiator? Great movie, I love it. I have the extra edition of it, DVD, special edition, where they have all the scenes that they took out. There's a couple scenes where they have Christians in it being thrown to the lions. And the, the director said, oh, I didn't want to put those in there because everybody knows that and we don't want to put this Christianity stuff in there. Dear Christian, if you're suffering because of good, carry on. He has a plan. And it is good for you. And I will pray with you. I will weep with you if need be. Don't seek suffering just to seek suffering. That's morbid. We don't do that. But if God has planned for you to suffer, don't be surprised that something strange has happened to you. Don't. This is a part of God's plan in many ways to perfect us as Christians. Seen in the whole book of 1 Peter Look at verse 13. But rejoice. How many of you rejoice in your suffering? Rarely do I do. But in your suffering for doing good, rejoice. That you, here it is, that you participate in the sufferings of Christ. So that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. As Christians, we participate in the sufferings of Christ. God has a purpose in suffering, and it brings fellowship. We participate. We fellowship with Christ when we suffer for good. And that is such a good thing. No wonder he says rejoice in that. When I read this verse, sometimes I always think, well, what are some of the questions that could come from this verse? And you may think, well, this is a weird verse. You participate with the sufferings of Christ? Know this. We, in our suffering for good, do not contribute to the suffering and finished work of Christ. His suffering, once for all, is done and finished. We don't contribute to that. Somehow then we can help redeem ourselves through suffering. No, no, it's not that. We have fellowship with Christ. We identify with Christ in that. Let me read this from the Life Application Bible Commentary. When trouble comes, don't be surprised, Peter writes. It is normal. God will help you through it. The Christian life holds plenty of wonderful surprises. Friendship, intimacy, heaven itself. But about pain and struggle, we are forewarned. It is coming. So arm yourself. Trust God and be encouraged. Your trial will test and refine your faith. Rejoice. 
God has a purpose and do it. So let me end with this. Take a look at our last slide. Got all the slides mixed up, number seven there. Four things. How does God want you to respond to suffering for doing good? Because please, Christians, listen to this. We live in a very dangerous time. We live in a very pivotal time for Christianity in America. So many things are happening that our grandparents would just be like, you got to be kidding. That could never happen in America. It's happening today all around us. So how are we to respond living a godly way, in a godly way? Four things. One, we are to have the right attitude as Christ did. Arm yourself with this attitude. Keep your eyes on the prize, your fingers in the word. Know that this momentary light affliction is nothing compared to the glory that will be revealed in us. Amen? Have the right attitude. If you suffer for doing good, rejoice. Don't do it like, oh, everybody, look, I'm suffering for God. No. Go home and just throw yourself before the Lord and say, thank you, Lord, but give me strength. Number two, we are to suffer not with surprise and shame, but with praise and rejoicing. It might come to the time in our state where they say, well, the public schools, our state, all that stuff, no longer can we have churches rent in school. That, that, no way. That, that's happening in different states where they're, it's coming before their governments. If that comes to us, we're not going to be like, suck our thumb and be like, oh, what do we do? Well, I'm going to rejoice. Lord, be with us. I'll arm myself and I will not all be wimpy and all be surprised and shameful, but I will praise and rejoice because these trials make me a partner with Christ in his suffering. Suffering is evidence of my union with Christ. Ooh, here's a big one. Suffering is evidence of my union with Christ. The third thing, commit yourself to do right. I encourage you, do right. Speak the truth in love. Be a billboard for what is true. Verse 19 says, So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. Church, stay in the path of doing right. Keep that worldview lens on and do what is right. And the last one, give yourselves to God in your suffering. Give yourselves to God in your suffering because this is what you have been called to do. And if you have this worldview on that presents truth and sin and Jesus is the only remedy, you will suffer. But don't give in because it's God's will that you should be in such a way. Why can you do this? Christ suffered. Through the cross, he understands suffering and he is with you and has power to have you carry on. Let's pray.